welcome to the FreightFind podcast, your source for all things transportation. FreightFind is brought to you by DATIQ, makers of RateCast. RateCast analyzes more than 118 billion in freight transactions and uses a predictive model with 95% accuracy, twice as accurate as any other tool on the market. Accuracy is not an opinion, it's a proven fact. Find out more at DAT.com slash IQ. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Shelley Simpson, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer of J.B. Hunt Transport Services, as well as the President of the Highway Services. Now, Shelley's had a 26-year career at J.B. Hunt. She started as an hourly customer service representative and over the years has held a multiple number of senior-level positions for business segments across the company. These include President of Integrated Capacity Solutions, a business unit she helped create, Chief Marketing Officer, President of J.B. Hunt's truckload business segment, and to her current role as Chief Commercial Officer. In this role, she leads the strategic direction of marketing, sales, customer experience, and external product development, including J.B. Hunt 360, something we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And Shelly and I will discuss, you know, innovation, technology, and the changing truckload industry. Following my conversation with Shelly, I'll be joined by Dr. Inamiyu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Shelly. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah. So, Shelly, your current role is EVP, Chief Commercial Officer, uh, President Highway Services. So tell us a little bit about what that entails. What is the role uh, responsible for? Well, my number one role in that title is really the Chief Commercial Officer role. And that role entails a couple of things. It is all of our customer-facing and revenue growth areas. So uh, all of our customer experience teams, our sales organization uh, inside that, but also the commercialization of our technology. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in more detail, but it'll be on our JB Hunt 360 platform is really part of that commercial responsibility. The second component um, to my job is leading two of our segments, which is ICS, our brokerage segment, and JBT, our legacy trucking segment. And those two, we've really merged into what we call highway services since we're really solving for customers for mostly truckload networks. Uh, It complements each other much better. So that's an interesting combination to bring the brokerage side, the ICS and the uh, JBT. Uh, Is there tension there? I'm curious because one is very (laughs) asset-based and obviously one is not. It seems like an interesting combination. I mean, it serves the same customers, but that must have been a struggle internally. Great question, Chris. Uh, So when we started ICS, that was back in 2007. And imagine an organization almost 50 years old that had been asset-based primarily, and we're going to start a brokerage operation. And by the way, it will be our fourth segment, and we're going to go to our first billion dollars. Chris, that was like cussing in Sunday school. Sure. Because uh, that created just a lot of questions in our people's minds, whether that was our internal people or, um, you know, the people that are on the road every day for our customers, our drivers. And so we did a lot of work thinking about how do we make sure that people understand that doing brokerage business is complementary and not a takeaway from the asset part of our business. One of the things we said was that uh, rising tide raises all ships, which was important because we knew we could grow our business and that would be good for our asset-based company and our non-asset-based company. And um, as we kind of progressed through ICS, By about 2000, let's see, it was December 2013, so it's about six years later, uh, that's actually when I added JBT to my responsibility. So my first executive role was in 2007, and that was leading the ICS segment. I then added my chief marketing role to that, which was in 2011, really leading all of sales and revenue growth for the company. And then in 2013, at the end, I added JBT. That started to bridge the gap. People started to see vision, where we were headed. And nowadays, Chris, it's just, it's so complimentary. We go back and forth between our talent, how we share, how we talk to customers. I would say it's been a really great um, disruption for our company, but a really great innovation story for us. Sure. And I imagine that you didn't have too much external pressure for that because this is aligning directly with what your customers were looking for, I would assume. 
Oh, definitely. I would say, but when we did start, Chris, our customers, um, you know, they knew us for intermodal and dedicated and truckload right. asset. And um, I remember saying early on, look, it wasn't just that uh, it was difficult to sell to customers that we really were going to get into this business. Customers were like, yeah, right. Brokerage. Okay. But so were our people. Our people thought the same thing, you know? So it was, we had internal and external pressures. And then even when we would talk to Wall Street, you know, they would say, okay, what gives you confidence you could grow to a billion dollars? So it was a little bit of everywhere. You know, you have to have a lot of patience and yeah. you have to be futuristic uh, because when you're in the moment, uh, that can be very frustrating. But if you can see the big picture, and I think most of us did, I think that becomes exciting and that's what motivated us. Makes sense. Makes sense. So now you've been at JB Hunt for a little over 25 years. How has the company changed? over that time period? Oh my goodness. So I started with the company two weeks after I graduated from uh, I'm a proud University of Arkansas Razorback and um, started sure. in the company in an hourly role. This was a short-term role for me for my summer job until I got my real job and I'm still on my part-time job, Chris. <laughs> uh, but I will tell you, when I very first came in the company, that was 26 years ago, you could just feel the family environment that existed. And I will tell you, that is something that has not changed. We have grown substantially, and a lot of people know that about us, but um, just that personal feel for, at least for me, I think was something that we really held on to as an organization. But so much has changed as well. You know, when I <clears throat> had that first role, we did have our dedicated segment and truckload and intermodal, but we also had a lot of different segments. Uh, and so we really focused in on what made sense for our customers, how we were going to be thinking about that. And we have grown substantially as an organization. Really, when I came, I remember thinking, I was in a meeting and and someone said Mr. Hunt had just brought in people to celebrate a billion dollars in revenue. And I thought, well, wow, I'm going to have to leave this company because they've already done it. I mean, they're already big. And you got to think I'm a 22-year-old right out of school kid, you know, and really lacked vision, didn't even know how big the market was. But I thought, well, they've already hit a billion. That's a huge company. I better leave and figure out something else. And, um, you know, little... Did I know the trajectory of our growth as an organization just changed significantly? And as you know, we're uh, really knocking on the door of a $10 billion company, right. almost all organic growth. Um, but I think the biggest things that we've changed, probably my number one, is the way we've gone to market. So we really mm -hmm. changed our approach from being a product-based sales organization to really be in a consultative solution-based organization. And that changed over about a 10-year period, really growing our people process and technology to the services our customers were asking us for. And that way, Chris, if a customer asks us, you know, to move one box or uh, their entire supply chain, that we could actually do that. That was something we didn't, um, we weren't able to do in the past. And so I thought that was probably our biggest change. The, the, Second thing, I talked about the family focus, but I'll tell you what hasn't changed is just our love of people um, and specifically for our drivers. Um, I have loved watching the entire organization rally around what a huge job and the heartbeat of our company is our drivers. Sure, and I think sure. that that for us, um, you know, we do million mile celebrations, which is uh, where we celebrate our drivers <clears throat> that have gone a million miles, two million miles. We've actually had a five million mile driver. Wow. Safely. Yeah. And it's just something that really pulls our company together. When they can see our drivers coming through our campus, it just changes the tone. And so, you know, we're right at around 30,000 people, nearly 20,000 of those are our professional drivers. So that's something I would say it hasn't changed. If anything, I think our love and appreciation for each other has gotten even better. Yeah. So you've certainly gotten a lot bigger, 10x growth in, in revenue and top line and anyway, and much more diverse, the product offering. So that's that seems uh, 
very, very strong. How do you think the industry has changed? Is, do you think uh, J.B. Hunt changed along with the industry? Or do you think J.B. Hunt kind of led some of the industry changes? Well, we would love to say we led, um, but I'm sure we haven't led in everything. You know, there are really great companies out there that have done a great job in leading in innovation. But there were, you know, a couple of big things that we really did lead. I don't know if we led the industry, but we certainly were early adopters. And um, that was intermodal. And so for us, taking trucks off the highway and moving them more efficiently uh, became an important initiative in our organization, really in the late 2000s. So 2008, nine. so only over the last Mm -hmm. 10 to 12 years, really changing the landscape. Certainly in our dedicated segment, uh, the same thing has happened. But I would say as an industry, you know, I said earlier that having a brokerage business inside an asset-based company, it is really like cussing in Sunday school, but I think that's changing. I think that people are embracing and understanding that if you really can solve um, for a customer's needs, it's just different. I see a lot of people that now have brokerage as a part of their company. And so I think that that is changing. But I'll tell you the biggest change I've seen in our industry is the move to technology. Hmm. So I mentioned that earlier. For us, if you look, Chris, at the waste that is sitting in the system, you know, of the three and a half million drivers here in the U.S., nearly one third of all of their time is completely wasted every single day on all three and a half million drivers. Right. And so we did a white paper in 2014. And in that white paper, we articulated what the 660 minutes, really the details of that. What was a driver doing in the 11 hours that he or she had to drive? Mm-hmm. And what we found in that waste were the components that we believed we could put people and process behind. But the biggest opportunity to eliminate that waste was technology. And so when you think of three and a half million drivers, nearly 2.9 million of those run for a company with 10 or less trucks. Right. So very small companies, you know, their capital goes into their truck and their trailer, and that's important. But it's difficult for them to invest into into technology. So they don't have the same access uh, to freight that the rest of the larger carriers have. And so we really went on this mission to think about how could we develop a platform that would address the waste in the system. And we believe by creating our multimodal digital freight platform called JBN 360, that we think we can change that. We think we can change the waste that's in the system. And so if I were to describe that best, I would just think of it um, as all shipments and all capacity. If we were to have that in a location, then we really could create a match, if you will, for hours of service, best load for the driver, best match to the customer. That's what's missing in a more manual process. And so that's what really pushed us, and I would say we were pioneers in this space, Chris, uh, to launch our JBN 360 platform. And it also changed our mission and our mission statement as a company. Right, right. So let me let me pause for a second. Let me dive in a little deeper here because um, up here at MIT, we've done somewhat similar studies to look at uh, the amount of time because we're trying to answer the question, is there a driver shortage or, or is there an efficiency shortage? And so in our back of the envelope calculations, we came up with 12 minutes. If you could find every driver 12 more minutes of drive time per day, the um, ATA's listed driver shortage would go away. Now, of course, that's kind of silly, but it shows how much the efficiency can be improved. So my question for you, Shelley, is this paper came out in 2014, 2015. Has anything changed? Has the industry gotten better? Have shippers recognized that it's in their benefit to improve the efficiency of drivers? What do you think? Yeah, I really do think so. Now, it takes some time, Chris. I'll I'll try to back you and I up to the very Mm -hmm. first time that we bought anything on a dot-com website. It probably uh, took us a bit to get used to it, and uh, it took probably several years. Now, I don't think it will take several years because we've been conditioned in society that our phone is our computer. And so I have seen a massive adoption from the carrier community. Um, You know, we have nearly 800,000 trucks on our platform. Now, that means, Chris, that they have come to J.B. Hunt. 
they have clicked on 360 and they have made a sign up and downloaded our Carrier 360 app. That's 800,000 trucks that have right, done that. Right. That's not us signing them up. That's them signing them up for themselves. And what I found is that was our very first part of our product that they wanted to do something different. They didn't want things to be the same. And so if you think about what's available in a platform, it's very much like how you and I shop, uh, you know. I try to liken it too for people to think about how truck drivers, how their their day goes. If you think about it, it'd be like how you and I might have traveled back in the 1980s. If you and I wanted to go to Cleveland, Ohio, I've not been to Cleveland before. I don't know if you have, Chris. I, I have. You got to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, okay. Awesome. okay. I might need to go there. Uh, but if, I, go. if I wanted to go with my family to Cleveland, uh-huh. um, you know, I might call a few people and say, hey, I've heard you've been to Cleveland. Can you tell me where do you stay? And what about restaurants? And, you know, about how much is everything? What is there to do? That's the way we traveled back in the 1980s. Most people that are younger can't even fathom that, right? Because right, the way we travel right. today. Well, I will tell you, that the work of millions of drivers looks very much like what I just described in today. That right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. But do you think the technology, huge improvement to get the carrier side, but do you think they can improve on their own or do you need the shipper buy-in to change their behavior? And so you, bingo, we have to have, there's two sides to create a marketplace. And the right. shippers, we do have to have that adoption from the shippers uh, in total. And this is what I would say. I think shippers have moved into having a strategy of making sure that they have brokers in their routing guide, in their portfolio. Yes. But I think that now they're starting to understand what can a platform do? What What is different? How is that disrupting and is better For my business, we are seeing great adoption um, from our customers, but we have so far to go. If you think about how large the market is, I will tell you, we are adopted uh, very well on the carrier and driver side. We have a lot of work to do on the shipper side just because the millions of shipments that are out there. So we have to gain scale to really create a platform. So what I would tell you is we're at the emphasis stage of it really having a lot of power as a platform. Just having shipments available for carriers does not make it a platform. You have to be able to have the right number and level of shipments and the right number and level of carriers to make the right match. Right. And integrating on the shipper side requires integrating to a TMS, usually That's a transportation right. management system for any shipper of size, which is a hard thing to do because it's uh, they have their own. The TMS providers have a, a their own ecosystem they're trying to support. So have you been able to crack that? Are you able to integrate into different uh, transportation management systems for shippers? So we're definitely integrated on the TMS side. Um, but we also, if you think about, we're connected with EDI, with customers. So if they can create as part of their strategy to use JBN 360, it really can operate in their current environment. We also work right. with customers through API and direct connectivity. And then they also can directly book. Uh, straight through 360. So for us, we've really segmented our customers based on their needs. And so we have our micro strategy, small shipper strategy, medium, and obviously Mm -hmm. large customers. Makes sense. Makes sense. Let's go back to the whole idea of innovation, because I know that's one of your main uh, jobs and responsibilities at JB Hunt. Um, We actually came in the industry at almost the same time. I got my PhD up here in 95 and went into transportation procurement doing something called OptiBid, and we worked with J.B. Hunt quite a bit at that time. And so I always viewed J.B. Hunt as an innovator. Um, you know, you mentioned um, in pioneering intermodal in 1989 with the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Um, you were one of the first carriers I knew who put optimization for driver load assignment and other operations in the mid-90s. And in 2000, you know, you were one of the companies that co-founded TransPlace, although you quickly, you know, all those carriers exited that. So I, I think innovation has always been part of uh, J.B. Hunt's DNA. Do you agree or am I, is that just an uh, outsider's rose-colored glasses view? <laughs> well, I like your rose-colored glasses. That's good. Um, here's what I would say. We were founded by a true entrepreneur. 
Mm-hmm. Someone that never, I love how Mrs. Hunt says it. He never met an idea he didn't like. Huh. <laughs> and so he was constantly dreaming about uh, what could be. And Mrs. Hunt was really our disciplinarian, making sure that that we had good process and, and that it made sense. And I think that was a good blend. And, and certainly our, our early leaders, Wayne Garrison and Kirk Thompson, boy, were they great at culture and financially making sure we were disciplined too. So um, I think that because we were founded in that entrepreneurial way, that has continued to live on. And so, um, Chris, we actually call innovation here. We, we try to get our people to think about it in the cycle of innovation. For us, the first part of innovation is how do we disrupt? How do we disrupt our way of thinking? Mm -hmm. How do we disrupt ourselves? How will we be disrupted? And disruption that we want to think through is the disruption that will be good, how we can make it better, that maybe what got us here won't get us there. And so we've really challenged our team, specifically as we launched into technology, we challenged our team back in 2017 in that theme of disrupt. You might see that on LinkedIn a lot, JBHT disrupt. It has been a theme for our company that disruption is good if we're a part of the process. Right. We couldn't just be disrupted and not worry. And I think that that's been probably with our company the whole time, even before we called it disrupt. So, but let me ask a question though, as, uh, as you've gotten bigger, as the company's gotten larger, sometimes it's... You get more things set in its way. Has innovation gotten easier or harder as you've grown over the last several years? Well, what's been really great is in 2015, I will tell you, I think we implemented one of our greatest ideas around inclusion and innovation. It was an internal process that we took the organization through called, we call it elevation. And it's the opportunity for anybody in our company to submit an idea that allows us to grow our revenue, reduce our costs, or just make this a better place for themselves, our customers, uh, people that interact with us. They submit those ideas. We have an entire team. And in those ideas, they get vetted. They get feedback as to would we be interested in doing that idea or why not? And we've had over 20,000 ideas, Chris, submitted from our people. Now, remember, I told you we have 30,000 people. So whether you're a driver right now out on the road, uh, you know, running across I-40 or a maintenance technician in our Chicago terminal or a a billing administrator here at our corporate campus, all three of those people have an equal voice. And as an executive team, we actually meet on that every single month. Yeah, that's that that's got to take a, a fair amount of work because I'm, I'm, I imagine you have some serial suggesters, right? And you have a constant stream. Do you have like a pipeline process you go through where first you triage them we do. and find common ones and kind of funnel those into the ones that make the most sense? Actually, our elevation team sits in, just in a stone's throw from where my office is right now. So we have a full team ah. that is dedicated to reviewing, making sure that we understand the idea and then finding the sponsors in the business to vet out that idea. Because think about it, if an, if an intermodal driver sends in an idea, they may not know a lot about mm-hmm. part of the company. So we have to go get the rest of the company engaged. So those ideas get vetted first through our elevation team. And the, right. the ideas that get approved or that they believe should be approved actually comes to our executive team for review and approval. So it's been a great process. I will tell you that has facilitated innovation inside our organization, but also sure. just um, embarking on technology has really pushed our company. You know, when you're doing something different, Chris, it's not always comfortable. Right. And I would say probably innovation today is more embraced than it ever has been, at least in my career. And I think it's a result of all of those things I just discussed. That makes sense. So can you uh, give an example of what's the best suggestion you you got or the strangest one that actually turned out to be a really good idea? Sure. So inside uh, our Drive app, that's for our drivers, we are constantly getting updates from them on what we should do or what how we should think about um, connecting with drivers. So they actually have an app that's right there on their phone. And mm-hmm. 
um, one of the things that we've implemented is something called electronic bill of lading. That happened during the pandemic. That was an elevation idea. And it was really a way to protect and create a level of safety for not only our drivers, but also our customers. Right. And so that idea um, not only got approved, but it got moved very quickly into production. And we actually rolled that out in a very short period of time and a quick sprint from a technology perspective. But that's just one idea that I think was very successful this year. Wasn't it amazing how fast things went from idea to implementation, say from March to mid-June? I mean, it seemed like the cycle time for software development got up by an order of magnitude. I have to say this, Chris, because I think this will match exactly what you're talking about. So in our cycle of innovation, we really move from disrupt to adapt. That's our Mm -hmm. second cycle or part of our cycle, which is really each person adapting individually, helping our customers adapt. But our third phase, and we actually rolled this out in February, right before the (laughs) pandemic, we rolled out our third phase of our cycle of innovation to launch the company through And we call that acceleration. So to your question, um, our theme and our move as an organization was really we've disrupted, we have adapted, we're now in our acceleration phase, and then COVID hit. And boy, did we, we had no idea how relevant acceleration would be for our organization. That makes sense. They uh, It's uh, talking to a lot of different shippers and carriers. It's amazing how quickly things got accepted and the decision-making process seemed to get a lot faster. People weren't dithering about stuff for long periods of time. Um, but let me ask a question about personnel and culture, because you've raised this, and I think it's a great point. Um, J.B. Hunt has a long history, like other companies like UPS, to hire and promote from within. And that creates a lot of deep expertise in the company, and you can work across the different areas. But sometimes in some organization, that becomes stayed. How have you balanced the need for new blood versus keeping people with long expertise and experience with the company? Well, first off, we love every person that has been with us for a long time because, um, you know, it's difficult to replace experience. Um, We have found that our people that stay with the company a long time, which to your point, Chris, is a lot of our people, you know, that we all do become like family. However, you know, we need new in-laws. We need uh, new people to freshen us up, to your point. And so we've done that in a couple of different areas. Our first one is um, just where we recruit from. We're hiring like crazy. And so we're constantly bringing in brand new people into the organization that don't have those years of tribal knowledge um, that honestly may hurt them or may help them. Mm-hmm. You know, Having all those years of experience doesn't always mean good. And I'm speaking even for myself because sometimes I sure. get stuck in my way of thinking. So that new uh, group that's coming in, that's very helpful. But the other thing is when we started our brokerage business, we definitely started looking at who we could bring in from the outside that had different experience. That was a good move on our company. Uh, Just making sure that we had people internally that could learn the business, but we did bring in people that had experience in brokerage. And then the second area that I saw us really make a move was in our technology space. So when Mm -hmm. our former CIO announced her retirement, we intentionally as a leadership team wanted to go externally for our executive hire. Now, Chris, we haven't done that in over 10 years. And so we did hire Stuart Scott as our new CIO. And that was, for us, we wanted a new way of thinking, a new way um, in that whole disrupt, adapt, accelerate. We had our 360 vision. We wanted to make sure that we had a technology leader that could not just take our vision, but make it even that much bigger and better. And so in our tech teams, we have grown significantly. That's been with a lot of brand new talent. And so if you look across our organization, I'll tell you, I feel like we've got a great blend of fresh, new perspective, not been with the company very long, so they don't know if we should or shouldn't. And then that seasoned right. veteran that really knows tried and true uh, and from a culture really helps span that across uh, the different areas in our company. Makes makes sense. Uh, but please tell me, you don't call the new people in-laws, do you? <laughs> I love my in-laws. At <laughs> <laughs> a certain point, you become a, you know part of the family. That That's really interesting. Um, 
Let me talk a little more about some of the innovations that uh, have come out that I've been reading about that we haven't talked about yet. We talked about JB Hunt 360, but can you talk about 360 Box? Because I think that's something that bridges the gap between small carriers and what larger shippers need. So Chris, thinking about innovation, one of the things that we did before we actually launched JB at 360, we had a customer advisory forum. It was really the first time we had brought customers in from across different segmentation. Um, so different sizes of customers. We did three different forums with our entire executive team uh, listening to our customers. There was no sales pitch. It was more about what did they need us to be thinking about. And we, we really gave them a sneak peek as to two things. Number one, the services that we were thinking about and how we should approach those and, and did that fit what they were thinking. And the second one was our technology. And we actually unveiled in a video and discussion uh, JBN 360. So they were the first to see it. That was August of 2016. We launched it April of 2017. It helped us validate what our roadmap looked like and also what our product would be. But I will tell you, their number one request was actually to incorporate, they loved the idea of JB at 360, but they wanted to incorporate drop trailers. And that really, right. at that moment, was when the 360 box idea was born. And we went into motion thinking about how we could really make that happen. Obviously, we're great uh, asset managers. We've done that for years. Um, so it was really about, okay, how do we put together a 360 box, if you will, in the marketplace? And that was something that we launched um, really in coordination with our customers. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing to do. I know I've talked to some shippers uh, that tried to do consortiums in the 90s and early 2000s with a, a vanilla fleet that they were hoping to use. Um, but it's been a it's a challenge to manage those assets, except within a very controlled environment. Are you uh, controlling that as well as part of the highway um, services? Yes. Does yeah, that fall all, under you? Yeah, pretty much anything with JBN 360 uh, is really my responsibility to make sure that we have um, great people process and technology. Um, inside that. So 360 boxes inside my area. I will tell you, um, Chris, I have a long background in pricing. And so I did, I can't tell you how many opti bids. You mentioned that earlier. Um, <laughs> and I cannot tell you how many times shippers were trying to do collaboration and sharing of, of assets and reduction in empty miles and all those things. Right, right. And what I've said through technology, what everyone has been looking for for at least, you know, I've done it 24 years. I've had pricing experience. It was mm -hmm. my first management job. What everyone was looking for was what now technology can bring. Because no longer do you have to call someone and say, hey, I'd really like to put, do you have freight that comes inbound to my area? Can we work together? We figure out what part you get, what part I get. Now a platform allows everybody to collaborate immediately. Right. And that's the major change for our shippers. That makes sense. That makes sense. What I found, though, that it, interesting, the math and technology for that is not that hard. It's getting the companies to agree on the process and the procedures and things. Um, but it's it's a really it's always been the holy grail to get uh, carriers or shippers rather to work together and balance their networks. Totally agree. So let me ask about another one. Um, you went into final mile. Um, not that re it's been what, five years? When, when did you start going to Final Mile? <laughs> well, that's a story, too. Um, actually, okay. right around <laughs> when we started ICS, we went into Final Mile in a more meaningful way. We had been doing what I would call Final Mile for uh, a couple of key customers, but it really wasn't a service that we talked specifically about. But we were actually with a customer. Our CEO at the time was the president of Dedicated. He got in front of a customer and said, hey, listen, what, what problems are you trying to solve? What, what would you like to see us do? What, what could we do different? And at that meeting, they said, you know, we're really struggling with a national provider. There's not one that can deliver our appliances in a national footprint that differentiates us. Right. And um, that's actually when we went into Final Mile. That was in 2008. We went into it in a fairly big investment, but that was after we did a few pilots with customers and then um, really moved into that national footprint. Now, here recently, really in the last, 
I would call it four, three to four years, Chris, is when we really ramped up because Mm -hmm. before that, we were an asset-based final mile company. Now we have done the same thing that we talked about in Howie Services, where we are blending really non-asset-based services, working with contractors, along with our asset fleet inside Final Mile to really serve our customers based on their need. Right. And and Final Mile, to be honest, only became really critical for shippers, uh, retailers about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when e-commerce started picking up. But I'm curious, you seem to have skipped over LTL. Is that is that uh, a conscious decision or do you have a, a substantial LTL operation I'm unaware of? Well, we are a full load company. Mm-hmm. However, um, LTL, we believe, is one of our greatest opportunities because of what our customers are talking to us about. Right. So we have done LTL for a period of time. If you think about Final Mile, that's LTL. And our customers, uh, actually, we work on how do we do the entire part of the supply chain for our customers, um, which could also include on the pickup side, how we get that product into movement in the supply chain. But we have done LTL primarily through our engineering services group because we want to take LTL shipments and convert those into more efficient ways to move goods. Got it. Makes sense. So a lot of consolidation, a lot of movement. Having said that, it's actually an area that we are growing. And so as our platform has come out, our customers now can choose any mode of operation. And certainly as we're in our small customer space, they are choosing, as you know, because they have so much more LTL, they're choosing uh, on the LTL side. And all of that, we work very closely with our providers. Yeah. So um, is most of your final mile have some kind of white or gray glove treatment? It seems like it's mainly focused on business to consumer, or do you have a very strong business to business side with it as well? We do have a business to business, but we're primarily focused on business to consumer. What we found is people need us to cross the threshold. Right. And so that is going to be white glove. We do have a full process behind that, background checks, fully ID'd, uh, making sure that we do proper training on how to actually enter his or her home. And what is that experience? We measure that in NPS very closely. We Mm -hmm. always want to know what the end customer thought of the experience. And we really think that we're on to something there. We think that's one of our growth areas in the company. Right, right. I know that you guys are one of the contractors for Peloton and making those deliveries. But we are. Um, I don't know if we've delivered one to your house yet, but I'd be interested in that experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I read good reviews. I had uh, another good. server who I will not name delivered <laughs> up here in New Hampshire. Um, well, we can always help you, Chris. That's I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Let me um, wrap things up with one last set of questions about the uh, pandemic. And I just wanted to get a sense of when did J.B. Hunt first start realizing that there'd be a significant impact in North American markets. How how early in the cycle did you guys come to that conclusion? Well, I'll tell you, I remember being in New York at a um, investor uh, analyst day, and we were in one-on-ones. And that entire day, I got those questions of mm. the coronavirus. And I remember coming back from that, I had two back-to-back customer events, industry customer events. But when I was there, it started really heating up. So that was all in with about a two-week process. We had a meeting when I came back. So that would have been Mm mid-February. We had a meeting. And it was interesting, Chris, that meeting, we did that in our boardroom. And I said, hey, we need to work on what is our, uh, you know, we call it our BCDR process if something were to happen with coronavirus. And I remember coming out of that meeting and somebody really poked at me and said, Shelly, oh, uh, yeah, we're really going to be working on if everybody's got to work from home. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I remind him of that, by the way. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, we, were, we were starting to plan um, there by that. It, it was only a week or so after we allowed our senior VPs the opportunity to kind of test what would happen. And then we pulled the trigger fairly quickly for people that could work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remember that 
all of our maintenance technicians, our professional drivers, and our operating teams that are there supporting them, they really are essential and there's not a work from home component. Right, um, right. So we really went into that. And then certainly from a customer view, I think at that point, you know what it was like. Customers were trying to figure things out. Certainly we were too, but we were, I would say we were on it fairly soon. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, here at uh, the center I run up at MIT, the Center for Transportation Logistics, we do periodic pulse surveys of the employees, much smaller scale than you guys have. But in February 2020, one of the number one requests from the employees was the ability to work at home. And so their dream has come true because they've been working at home <laughs> since March. Um, but mm. it's funny how something that people really wanted now, eh, it's, you know, we're getting uh, kind of exhausted of working at home. Um, and so how, how have things changed operationally within the company over this time? People who can work at home do. Um, did you find a larger percentage actually were able to efficiently or did that was that a smaller number? Well, I would say we did have at our corporate campus, there's a lot of people at our corporate campus in what I would call support. And so they're not directly interacting mm -hmm. with customers and carriers, but we also have quite a few here at our corporate campus that are working directly with customers and carriers. And so we're yeah. a little bit split. Um, and so the people that are working closely with customers and carriers, I will tell you, Chris, we started getting feedback from our people just needing to get to some sort of normalcy. And so we right. actually implemented a part-time in the office um, through social distancing, mask wearing. We did a complete overhaul on our HVA system that became hospital grade. Everything became touchless. And we started our staff coming in on a flex schedule. So a couple of days a week. I cannot tell you the energy that I felt from our people. Um, just being able to see and interact again, they were so weathered uh, being at home because the work never stopped, right, you know, right. and we're in this small confined area. Uh, and so this past Monday, actually, uh, we started bringing back people on a more regular five-day work week. And so far, uh, we've had really great feedback. Now, we did allow people uh, that had any health concerns or and we're sheltering in place, just whether that was out of fear or just didn't want to be around people, we honor that. And we've said we can remain sheltered in place and we will honor that. The second grouping that we had were people that uh, had child care issues. And right. we, we asked if they had any opportunity to have someone in their household or someone they knew to help in that. But if they could not, we also honored that. And so we have about 85% of our staff that we've really said, listen, if you're out and about in the community and you're comfortable being in the community, we want to invite you into our corporate campus. We think you'll be comfortable here. And we had about 85% of our staff returning back. That makes sense. That makes sense. We're up here in uh, Massachusetts. We're much lower. Uh, we're still at like a 20% back as needed. So, so Shelly, have you gotten any pressure from the salespeople uh, and their need to go out and visit clients? I know during the heat of the pandemic, they probably use Zoom calls and things like that. But are they uh, wanting to go back to the clients for face-to-face? -face? Well, I can tell you I'm ready to travel. <laughs> um, but I also recognize, uh, you know, the risk and social distancing. We have not asked anyone to travel. We've asked everyone if they are comfortable or they want to see a customer or a customer wants to see them, they actually need to run that through their senior leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had a couple of instances, but honestly, Chris, people just aren't interested in meeting right now. Yeah. Uh, we've had a few dinners. I've not seen a customer for the most part, the majority of the pandemic. I think customers are still heads down trying to figure out yes. how to, you know, Supply and demand still not in great shape. I think that they're super busy. And um, I do think that we'll get back to some kind of travel next year. I'm just not sure what that will look like. Yeah. So last question. Um, what, if any, silver linings or lessons have you learned from the pandemic that you think will translate and uh, persevere into post-pandemic times? Well, we have always wanted to work from home. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, yeah. people used to say that was a millennial thing. Well, I, I must be a millennial um, because everyone <laughs> wants more flexibility. I would tell you, I think as a society, we figured out we could do a lot from home. That's certainly something mm -hmm. 
that we have learned and will continue to put into practice, but also just our communication. I think we've done a better job with our people and our people back to us. We are so much more intentional. And in my mind, there's no reason that we can't do that. But I will tell you, if if anybody hops on a call with me and they don't have their video on, that's a regular cadence where I'll say, hey, I can't see you. I want to see you. And so from conference calls to now making sure we see each other over video, all those things I think we've all figured out as a society. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you very much, Shelly. I enjoyed talking with you. You as well, Chris. I appreciate the time. Yeah. All right. Everyone stay tuned for the Truckload Market Update with Dr. Enam Yu. Let's take a brief pause to talk about the FMIC Pulse Signal Report from DAT. Formerly part of Chainalytics, the Freight Market Intelligence Consortium, or FMIC, is now part of DAT Freight and Analytics. FMIC Pulse members receive monthly reports based on their subscription, which includes DATIQ's proprietary forecasting approach to predicting the future of North American truckload markets. Are rates dropping? Is the market getting tighter? How should I approach next year's transportation budget? All of these questions and more are answered in the FMIC Pulse Signal Report. Visit DAT.com slash Pulse Signal and fill out the form for a free limited view of the report. And become a member of FMIC to receive unlimited access. All right, let's get back to it. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for December 3rd, 2020. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up 2.5%. Spot rates down 1%. Replacement rate is positive 10%. This means that the new contract rates are about 10% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 1%, spot rates are flat, and replacement rates are flat as well. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates are up 1%, spot rates up 1%, and replacement rate is positive 7%. All right, so there are some interesting takeaways for this this week. The big one is looking at dry van right? The positive 10% replacement rate, but we kind of saw this coming, right, Enam? Because we saw the canary and the coal mine spot rates going, and it seems like there's always a lag. Is that what's happening there? The replacement rate, these contract rates are a reflection of the spot rates that were rising throughout the fall? Absolutely. I think that's that's exactly what, you know, we, even though the spot rates were rising for such a long time, uh, we didn't see the contract rates picking up. But now all the all the third quarter bids are getting implemented now. And also, obviously, all the new lanes and the, you know, the resourcing lanes and so forth. So all of them are coming in from the mini bids and so forth. So we are seeing the the active rates going up. Uh, but on the on the other side, we are seeing the spot rates coming down. Uh, so uh, that has to come down f- over a period of time when before we start seeing the active rates actually starting to react to that. Right, but we expect that to happen. And like we've been saying for a while, we see Q1 uh, things starting to settle down. Right now, shippers are very anxious because it's the bidding cycle and uh, asset, non-asset, whether they're uh, uh, digital brokers or traditional brokers, rates are coming in higher. Um, but we can we see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? That we see a spot rates decline. We expect contract rates to follow uh, at a certain time in the future. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and so what about uh, the impact from uh, Black Friday and that period, all the, the Black Monday, the Cyber Monday, all of that? Has that had any impact on this, or is that something we're able to capture? Uh, not yet. I think the, the data is still rolling in. That's something we are looking forward to seeing. Uh, I think in the next update, we will be able to give a much clearer picture on 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 the actual impact of the... I would, I would say, I mean, the, the inventory that was being... Uh, positioned for the Black Fridays and so forth, you know, we did see the impacts of those, but actually what happened on those those days, we are yet to see and the data is still coming in. Yeah, and I guess we'll maybe next month we'll be able to see, get some sense of uh, if the vaccine distribution 
is going to have any impact on the reefer capacity. There's debate whether, you know, are they totally isolated markets or will there be some kind of ripple effect as things go through? But we'll be able to take a look at that maybe next month. Definitely, definitely. From from everything that I have I have read and seen about the vaccine itself, I think I think those might not hit the the common over the road market that that we see today. Those are you know the, the first of all the value of it itself and the quick to market that they have to bring and the conditions that it need to fit. It might we might not see the the actually impact you know hitting the the real over the road market got it got it and what about the intermodal it's interesting that that's gone up seven percent do you think that's the same reflection because we haven't seen the spot as rise as much in the fall do you think that's due to just the the rise of imports coming in or some other factor? I, I would believe that one one of it is the, the imports coming in and the other is the, um, I would say that the, the, you know, some shifting to inner model just because they can't just handle the, the, the rise in the truckload rates. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, I guess that concludes this week's truckload market update. Thank you, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Fine. The Freight Fine podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Fine wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Fine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Fine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.